Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Story, and just as I've been here, church planting for eight years, it uh, you just ride the wave of the Spirit and the city, and the way the Spirit works is there are waves that sort of combine, and then they change, and just the willingness to be able to do that, it speaks to the unity of the kingdom, the unity of the church and the city, uh, to even be open to it, that there's not a lot of... Uh, uh, selfish oriented, oriented thinking. And so I'll be praying for you. Citizens will be praying for you in that process and be praying with Tom and Josie as well. Um, well, I, can someone read our scripture for today? I think it's on here. It's First Peter 4, 7 through 11. And then we'll pray. Daisy, can you read it from the screen? I'm used to calling on Daisy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him being glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the Spirit which inspired the Word and now illuminates it. We ask for you to open uh, this passage to our hearts and open us to this passage. I pray that it would be an encouragement, uh, that it would bring challenge and conviction, it would bring life. Uh, Father, we ask that you would unite us uh, in the shared listening of your Word. Um, and would it bear fruit, much fruit, uh, tenfold, hundredfold fruit in our lives this morning. Uh, We uh, believe in your presence. Uh, We believe in your power. We believe in your grace and your kindness. And so be kind to us as we listen to your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we were walking our dog a few months ago and came upon an open house in our neighborhood. Uh, This house uh, is a two-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath house, and was listed at $1.2 million. Um, I actually looked last night. It sold for $1.45 million. Um, It was an open house, so we got to go inside. It's currently unlivable. Uh, We walked inside. It's just studs. Uh, There's no walls, no plumbing, no electricity. There is a huge hole in the floorboard that you can see the ground, the dirt in. The hole the size of a couch, like just completely unlivable. 
you could have had it for $1.45 million. Uh, the flyer said in bold letters across the top, location, location, location. Um, the real estate agent was trying real hard and apparently succeeded, uh, surprisingly. <laughs> Uh, according to the agent, as I was talking with her, the owner bought it with plans to renovate it on his spare time in the weekends. He got permits and everything, but he just couldn't swing it for whatever reason. I'm not sure why. And so he decided to cut his losses and sell. And that must have been so hard for him. I had a lot of sympathy for him in that. It is so hard to quit something that you've already invested so much time in. He put money, time, sweat, vision into this house and when you do that, it often feels like failure to let go, um, even if it's the wise decision, uh, the correct course of action. Uh, behavioral economists call this feeling the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, sunk costs are costs you've already paid and can't get back. That's why they're sunk. Like he can't recover that time. He can't recover that vision or those, those emotions. And the sunk cost fallacy is the phenomenon whereby a person is reluctant to abandon a strategy um, or some action because they've invested so much in it, even when it's clear that abandonment is the best course. Um, and so in other words, we often continue with a project, not because it's still worthwhile, but because emotionally we don't wanna lose the money, time, and effort we've already spent on it. Uh, even though those costs are technically lost, uh, you can't get them back, but it just feels wasteful and sometimes shameful. Uh, I could easily envision this guy feeling some shame that he bought a house, talked to all his friends about it, was so excited about it, and then ultimately had to bail. Um, I can think of countless situations where the sunk cost fallacy tempts us. What are some examples that you might think of? Uh, courses of action where it's really hard emotionally to, to bail on it. A hike. Hmm? A hike. A hike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, spoke, spoken from personal experience. Yeah, yeah, this like grand plan and then to turn around is no fun. Anything else come up? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it can feel really hard to turn around and to, to renege on your plans that you've sold to other people even. In the process of selling it to yourself, you know you'll speak, it, speak up about it. Um, little ways, like when you continue to watch a movie or read a book and you really don't like it, um, or some TV series, but you're like, well, I've already invested so much time, so I guess I have to finish. Um, waiting for a train or a bus that's like not coming but then you think, well, man, I've already waited 20 minutes, so I'm not gonna walk a few blocks over here. Uh, more seriously, like a toxic culture of some kind that you might be a part of, a job, a church, a dating relationship, where you just think, well, man, we already know each other, I've already invested, even though there are clear signs that you should abandon course. Hmm. So how do we know when to give up? Uh, when to cash out, uh, to pivot? What do you think are signs that we should change strategy? You lose your pace. You lose your pace? Peace. Peace. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's the peace overwhelms the conflict. Or the, the conflict overwhelms conf the peace. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, conflict overwhelms the peace. What else are signals? Like health. Health. Mm -hmm. physical health um, like 
example. Yeah. If you literally <laughs> are dying mm-hmm. <laughs> and you physically can't go on, um, but that could apply to something else emotionally or yeah. mentally. Yeah, needing to turn around. What are other signals that to you that's been like, you know what, I just I just shouldn't do this anymore? I think when God's telling you, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we listen to that. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes I mean in hearing God's voice like direction towards something different like, like yeah. most obvious, but like Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to abandon course and not know what is next, but then when you're given something new, that's really helpful um, and really kind of Jesus to do that. Economists tell us that the way to avoid this fallacy is for people to only evaluate decisions um, based on future costs and benefits. Um, because past costs are in the past, they're sunk. Like you can't get them back and so don't, don't let them have any hold on you. Um, the only relevant question for decision making is what makes the most sense moving forward. Um, and so, if some, so you can imagine if somebody wasn't as emotionally invested in, as you are and they subbed in for you, what decision would they make? Um, now the past of course is helpful to keep in mind, uh, to inform you, um, but it shouldn't skew your decision. Uh, where might that thinking be dangerous? Does that make you nervous at all? The behavioral economist's advice to just forget the past, only look to the future. Does that feel dangerous? Yeah, how, how so? Why would it feel kind of hard? What's the risk of that advice? What's the unknown? The unknown? Yeah, so yeah, you're you could be interpreting the future wrongly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the damage that's already been done. Mm. Like the cost. Um, the, the past does play, play, play a big part in going forward. Yeah. Particularly on your family or on your health or, mm-hmm. or financially, the cost has been incredibly big. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's, it's one thing for economists to give that advice about like a yeah. spending decision, but so much of what we do is people-oriented. Um, this feels like it doesn't work with covenant, like the idea of promise, uh, making promises and keeping them. Um, yeah, so it's... Go ahead. So I just minded of the scripture that says, don't say I'm going to go to this city or that city, I'm going to make a fortune, and don't be presumptuous. Yeah, basically. yeah, don't... So this could be presumptuous. The, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. With all that in mind, just thinking about that idea of a sunk cost fallacy, I want to ask a question, um, a question that's not often asked on a Sunday morning. Uh, when might it be time for us to give up on Jesus? On the church, on faith, and devotion. It's not a question that we ask often, but I think it is an important question to sort of wonder, um, when should we give up? Um, If today is day one, and you're not factoring in all that you've already invested into faith, um, should you keep believing? Maybe you have a history of commitment. I'm, I'm sure many of people here do, right? Where you've invested a lot into the truth of Christianity, emotionally, cognitively, relationally. Uh, I've made major life decisions based on my commitment to Jesus, right? I've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe your family is Christian. But those are all sunk costs 
I can't get them back, right? Um, so I don't want to let the status quo skew today's commitment to me. And so if I'm just thinking about today moving forward, should I still follow Christ? Given all that you know now, given your present experience and need, does it make sense for you to continue being a Christian, to keep paying the cost, or should you cut your losses and move on? How will we decide? Well, the behavioral economist advice is actually pretty good. Um, If we're to avoid a sunk cost fallacy around our faith, our answer must depend entirely on our expected future. And 1 Peter 4, 7 begins, the end of all things is at hand. So Christianity is a historical faith. It's always looking back, all the time. Every Sunday, we gather together to remember what God has done. We remember the foreknowledge of God who planned salvation before time. We remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We remember the giving of the Spirit. We remember our own pasts right? When we were once lost but are now saved, we have been born again. When we received the good news, we're confessing those things every Sunday. Those are all things that have happened in the past, which are the ground of who we are and what we do. And yet Peter reminds us here, and the New Testament continually calls us, to keep the future in front of mind for us, that that is actually what motivates us. It's what keeps us moving forward is our guaranteed future. Our discipleship is grounded in the past, but always oriented toward the future. And so even as we gather every Sunday to recount the work of Christ, past and present, let us remember the future to which our work is aiming, to which our lives are aiming. A future which cannot ultimately be found in this life, but only in the next. And it's our awareness of that eternal future which protects us from the dangers we were talking about, where we were like, we don't actually know the future. But here we're saying this future we do know. I don't know a lot about my future, but long term, I know a great deal. I'm certain of it. I'm confident in it. Jesus' return, it's kind of unfair, really, because it's like a trump card. It just, it just puts its finger on the scale. His resurrection, his promised return, just skews the whole thing. Um, and I can't argue with it. A lot of people uh, are deconstructing their faith. It's a, a lot of people in the, the age group of the church that I'm a part of, and a lot of the people in San Francisco that I'm connected with, uh, they are struggling with the question of, should I keep believing in Jesus? And they are thinking about cutting their losses sometime after decades of commitment, um, decades of time invested. Um, and if they aren't actively uh, doing it, to live in this city is sort of always have that option in your mind. Um, to always sort of be aware of it, thinking about it. In our day and in our city and in our churches, many people are asking themselves, does being a Christian still make sense for me? Does my theology still make sense? Does the Bible still make sense? Does church membership actually lead to flourishing? Uh, Is mission and evangelism worth it? Is following Jesus as good an investment as I thought it was when I first believed? As good an investment as I was told? especially in this day of reckoning, uh, at least within much of the American church, um, where the people who first told me about Jesus sort of revealed themselves to not be very Christ-like later in life. And that's really hard. Um, Does that compromise the genuineness of my faith? Now, of course, the specific 
details of our traditions and theologies might need to be deconstructed. And so we should be thinking thoughtfully um, about what we believe. And if, and if our traditions are built on untruth or half-truths, if they're not reasonable in light of Scripture, then they need to be replaced, full stop. We need to let go of them. Traditions that have calcified into traditionalism, which is idolatry, right? They needs to be redeemed and resurrected by Jesus or replaced, and, um, and you need to jump ship. But the only reason to abandon faith in Jesus entirely would be the decided conviction that he is either dead or not coming back. That is the only reason that one should leave the faith, deciding that the end of things is not at hand. It doesn't matter. And so the advice of Paul is to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if Christ is alive, if he is king, the gospel is always worth believing always just those facts those facts alone if he is resurrected if he is king if he is coming back then he is worth putting my entire faith and trust in the obedience which follows faith is always worth doing and so if you find yourself wavering this morning doubting wondering if it's worth it wondering if a certain uh, element of obedience is worth it Apply the pragmatism, it's very pragmatic, the sunk cost fallacy. Make your decision based on the future. Set aside your history of commitment, all that you've done. Set aside the failures of the church. Set aside your own failures, the hole that we have dug ourselves in. No matter where where you're at, if today is day one, a resurrected Jesus is always worth following. A returning Jesus is always worth waiting for, always. Even if it means doing the same things over and over again your whole life. So much of the Christian faith is that, doing the same things over and over and over again my whole life without much to show for it often. Even if it means the church does the same general thing over and over again for two millennium, right? And if it goes on for another thousand years, and we continue to mess it up as the church does and do it poorly, it's still worth it. If Jesus is alive, if the gospel is true, if the end of all things is at hand, any cost we pay today is always worth it. We can and should freshly decide for Jesus every day of our life, where we can apply this every day, where if today's day one, is Jesus alive? Is he king? Is he coming back? Yes, then I'm going to keep following him. And so if you find yourself this morning wrestling with faith in the light of your own circumstances and in light of the failures of the traditions that you've come from, ask yourself, man, is Christ alive? Is he king? Is he coming back? If you're reconsidering whether discipleship is worth it, man, it's just not leading to anything like the flourishing that you felt you were promised. Um, And you're wondering whether a Buddhist life might be a better deal, right? Uh, An agnostic life, a loosely Christian but no church kind of life. Ask yourself, man, is Christ alive? Is he king? Is he coming back? Now, Christ Almighty might not be ruling in the way that you want him to, Uh, He might not be present and active in the places and moments. You would be active if you were in his place. Uh, His second coming may be way far away, maybe so far away across church history. They've always thought it was imminent, right? And so if you look at that, you're really like, ah, it could be thousands of years more. Um, But if he's alive, 
if he's active at all, if he's coming back again sometime in the future, faith is still worth it. And of course, the sunk cost fallacy works both ways. It not only challenges our faith in Christ, it challenges everything we commit, we're committed to, right? Jesus uh, himself in Luke 9, he warns wannabe disciples to beware the sunk cost fallacy. He kind of uses it himself. Um, Luke 9, verse 57 through 62, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the sunk cost fallacy at work, right? To the first, he asked him to count the cost of discipleship. Is it worth it to you? And to the second and third, he asked them to count the cost or the benefits, really, of, the, of his other devotion, right? To family, even, is that commitment worth it? It didn't matter where they were coming from. It didn't matter where they were go, what they were doing. They had just met Jesus, the eternal Son of God made flesh. And at that point, every day before meant nothing compared to their following Christ. Uh, First Peter is written to a suffering church. It's written to a persecuted church. Uh, They weren't enduring legal uh, persecution, though. Martyrdom would come later. Um, For now, they were suffering significant relational uh, persecution, social, economic, cultural persecution because of their faith in Christ. And so they were experiencing ostracism. They were maligned. They were considered a blight on their communities. Um, And in that context, needless to say, they were probably struggling with their hold on to Christ. Um, this was not the abundant life that they had been promised. Uh, the gospel had not brought flourishing for them and their families. And so surely they were asking themselves, should I keep on or should I return to the ways of my forefathers? And so Peter writes to this church and says, don't return. The time has passed, he says in 1 Peter 4. Like, the time has passed for that. Now hold on to Christ. And in today's text, Peter grounds their community's practice in Jesus' future coming. The end of all things is at hand. It's a exhaustive phrase, right? The end of all things. Uh, Not just the bad things. Some of us uh, look forward to death because we want the end of bad things to be done. Um, Some of us are afraid of death because we are worried that the good things will be done. And this verse says that both of those things will happen. The end of all things. Bad things, good things. Our sufferings and our joys. Our gains and our losses. The end of nations and peoples. The end of economies and polities. All the things that so dominate our lives will all be done with and soon. It's at hand. We can grasp it. It's within reach. And at that time, the true character, the end of all things, it's a play on words, so not only the finish of all things, but its direction, its outcome. The end of all things, whether they are good or bad, worth much or worth little, will be revealed in the light of the returning Christ. And 1 Peter 4, 7 invites us to ask ourselves, what are my things that are in those all things? 
What are the things that concern you, that dominate your thinking, that worry you, that occupy your time? And so for real, I want you to take a moment. What is the Holy Spirit bringing to you, bringing to mind for you right now? What are the all things? And I want you to take that thing and remember 1 Peter 7, that the end of that thing, those things is at hand. The end of that decision, the end of that career, the end of that grief, the end of that hope, the end of that person, the end of you, the end of all things is near. And if today is day one and some future tomorrow is the return of Christ, what should you now do with that thing? How tightly should you hold on to it? How loosely should you hold on to it? Set aside the sunk costs. It doesn't matter how much you've invested in it, how much you've thought about it. Forget the strategies and plans and investments and identities and ask yourself what you should do with it. If Christ is alive, if he is king, if he is returning, what should you do now? What makes the most sense? And what's amazing to me is that with such a momentous future hanging over the church and the world, Peter encourages these Christians to pursue a pretty mundane life. The paragraph that follows is not wild or sexy or um, exciting. It is very, very normal. And you could really easily see Peter challenging the church, the early Peter from the Gospels before Christ's death and resurrection. What would he have said? Man, take some drastic course of action. Like, let's fight, let's revolt, let's retreat to the wilderness, let's quit our job, let's just wait. And maybe that's what you're feeling right now, and maybe that's what you need to do, that there is some drastic course of action that the Lord is inviting you to. Um, You've overinvested in something that you need to cut your losses and run. That could be something that the Spirit lays on your heart. Um, But that's not really the heart of this passage. Uh, This passage takes that momentous future and applies it to the mundane faithfulness of the church. Uh, These people have really already done the drastic thing. They chose to follow Jesus. They left behind their cultures and families. And after that radical decision, what are they meant to do? 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There are four things the church should do in light of the return of Christ. And none of them are very exciting, but they're also very important and so rich. First, we should protect our prayer life. First Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is, is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If it's true that Christ is coming again, we have to pray. We have to give ourselves to prayer. Uh, John Piper wrote an article called The Early Church Prayer List. And in it, he writes, prayer remains one of the great and glorious mysteries of the universe, that the all-knowing, all-wise, all-sovereign God should ordain to run his world in response to our prayers is mind-boggling. But that is the uniform witness of Scripture. God hears and answers the prayers of his people. 
Oh, do not neglect this amazing way of influencing nations and movements and institutions and churches and people's hearts, especially your own. And then Piper goes on to provide a pretty exhaustive list where he just lists the prayers of the New Testament. And um, I'd like to read it to you just quickly. Um, uh, He says, pray that God would exalt his name in the world. Pray that God would extend his kingdom in the world. Pray that the gospel would speed ahead and be honored. Pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would vindicate his people in their cause. Pray that God would save unbelievers. Pray that God would direct the use of the sword. Pray for boldness in proclamation. Pray for signs and wonders. Pray for the healing of wounded comrades. Pray for the healing of unbelievers. Pray for the casting out of demons. Pray for miraculous deliverances. Pray for the raising of the dead. Pray that God would supply his troops with necessities. Pray for strategic wisdom. Pray that God would establish leadership in the outposts. Pray that God would send out reinforcements. Pray for the success of other missionaries. Pray for unity and harmony in the ranks. Pray for the encouragement of togetherness. Pray for a mind of discernment. Pray for a knowledge of God's will. Pray to know God better. Pray for power to comprehend the love of Christ. Pray for a deeper sense of assured hope. Pray for strength and endurance. Pray for a deeper sense of God's power within you. Pray that your faith not be destroyed. Pray for greater faith. Pray that you might not fall into temptation. Pray that God would complete your good resolves. Pray that you would do good works. Pray for the forgiveness of your sins and pray for protection from the evil one. That is quite a list, uh, but none of it is very surprising. Um, To show my lack of faithfulness to 1 Peter 4, I was compelled by this article years ago and then compiled a little booklet with all of those lists that I would have and then promptly lost it. Uh, And so I was not remembering that the end of all things is at hand and being sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of my prayers. Such a prayer life requires that we be self-controlled and sober-minded. We have to protect our prayer lives. I'm so easily distracted from prayer. But if Christ is alive, if he's king, if he's coming back, I have to give myself to prayer. I can, I can think too highly of myself and want to do so many other things when the thing that I'm called to do is to pray. We must give ourselves to prayer. How will we discipline ourselves, our calendars, our appetites, so that we might be diligent in prayer? How will we shape our services and our small groups so that we might be diligent in prayer? How am I going to stay sober throughout the day so that I remember to pray when I read discouraging news stories, when I read emails that are frustrating, so that my first response, my constant response, is prayer? First, we must protect our prayers in light of Christ's coming. Second, we must love one another. Again, not rocket science, but it's the second thing on the list. If Christ is king and coming back, we must love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Uh, no Christian community is perfect, um, but because we believe that Christ is coming again to make us perfect, we persevere in love. We love each other for the future, um, knowing that what, what you will become and what I will become. Uh, we hold on to each other, even through hurt. Peter encourages us to love each other above all. More than being a perfect church, more than being a skilled church, more than being a successful church, more than being a large church, above all, be a loving church. Because love covers a multitude of sins. In any church, there is and will be a multitude of sins. Multitude. Personal sins, interpersonal sins. How do we survive that mess through love? through love it clears the sand from the gears of life together which cause our community to seize up right if there is no love our relationships stand no chance it's going to seize up which is why we must above all keep loving one another earnestly third verse nine we must show hospitality without grumbling uh, not only must gears be cleaned of sand and grit, they have to learn how to work together, right, at the right pace. Like, one can't go faster than the other, right? Gears can't spin at their own pace. They can't go in different directions, right? Uh, and for some of us, life together in community moves slower than we want it to. And for others, life moves a lot faster than we want it to. And Christian community takes time and patience, intentionality. It requires sacrifice, Uh, By hospitality, Peter doesn't only mean making room for people in your home, although that's included. It's an especially challenging thing in San Francisco because most of us don't have uh, super spacious homes. Um, But the gospel calls us to host each other in homes, and so it's an element of what it means to be Christian. Um, But more than that, Peter is making sure we're in the habit of making room for people in our lives, right? How often do you pivot, flex, adjust from what you would choose to do so that you can host brothers and sisters in Christ in your life? Is that a regular rhythm for you? Are you able to do it without grumbling? Uh, Most of us join a church, especially a small church, and start out so very grateful um, for the relationships that we're in, but over time we can tend toward grumbling, right? We uh, there, there's grit and sand in the gears. Uh, we get tired of waiting uh, for others. Uh, we resent the limits others place on us simply just by their existence. And we begin to ask ourselves the same questions that I started asking at the beginning about deconstruction. Is it still worth it? Is this still worth it? Um, wouldn't life be easier without having to consider so many other people? Uh, wouldn't life be easier if I could make my schedule without reference to anyone else? And yes, it would be easier. Um, but notice how those same questions are the questions de- deconstructing people are asking about Jesus. And that's not a coincidence because the church is the body of Jesus. An unwillingness to pivot for Christ's body will lead to an unwillingness to pivot for Christ. Um, Peter is encouraging us in light of the coming end of all things, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And last, Peter encourages us to use our gifts. If showing hospitality in verse 9 is a more passive form of love, um, 
uh, where I'm laying down my plans and prerogatives for others, this is a more active, using our gifts in verse 10 as an active form of love, where I'm leveraging my strengths for the sake of others. Uh, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. As each has received a gift, that is such an important phrase. There is no one at Sanctuary, there is no Christian in San Francisco who has not received a gift from God meant to serve others. All of us are gifted. And if Christ is risen, we should employ our gifts for the building of this church and spread and the spread of his name. And we do this because we want to be good stewards of God's varied grace. And that is another great phrase. God's grace is varied. So often in the church, we obviously talk about God's grace to forgive sins, but God's grace is more varied than that, right? It's diverse. He doesn't make us all the same, but has gifted each of us uniquely. Uh, One of the most wonderful things about being a pastor is watching uh, so many people serve in so many different ways. It's one of the reasons that I love going to different churches and hearing about different churches. The Church of San Francisco is made up of remarkably gifted people, remarkably gifted, which all together highlight God's varied grace. And so ask yourself, how has God gifted you? What has he made you passionate about? What skills has he given you? What do you love? What do you hate? What do you get emotional about? Those are elements of God's gifting. What limits has God placed on you that channel your gifts? Uh, That's what limits are for us. They sort of direct us and help us know uh, where God wants us to be. Those are super important questions and all the more important because the end of all things is at hand. Uh, We only have so much time uh, to use our gifts here. Uh, If we remember all the parables of Jesus that are about a master who goes away and leaves his servants in charge. Uh, He's coming back. What will he find you doing? Um, I said at the beginning that all of this is like pretty mundane and normal stuff. Nothing is so exciting, but it's not mundane, right? Um, Devoting ourselves to prayer, to love, to hospitality, to using gifts from God, divine gifts, when done in the name of Christ, in anticipation of his return, it is where heaven and earth meet. First uh, Peter 4, 10 through 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Dear brother, dear sister, when you speak a word of counsel, encouragement, challenge to another Christian in faith, you speak as one who speaks oracles of God. When you serve, you are not wielding your own strength, but the strength that God supplies. Think of what this means. First Peter is written to the early church, and the early church was mostly made up of powerless, unimportant, weak people. They knew about oracles, right? Oracle at Delphi, that was the height of culture. That's where oracles happen. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. When you speak, 
with you with God's gift you are an oracle you slave woman slave man oppressed wife you are speaking as one who speaks oracles of God when you serve you are serving with the strength that God supplies everything you do everything we do that is done from faith in Christ is done as his hands and feet as his voice and power we do it all in his name in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and that is wild what a privilege what a mercy a lot of people will myself included will read verses and I bring all this baggage into verses about the end times uh, which is this verse right and I sort of get scared that's sort of the expected emotion that I'm nervous um, that the hammer's about to drop the dad's about to come home and I'm gonna get in trouble um, and and in truth like that fear is an appropriate response some people all of us should have an element of fear um, around it but the goal of first Peter 4 7 is not fear but excitement which is a different kind of fear right it's almost over the end is at hand your suffering is nearly done and not only that you're gonna finally get to see what it was all about I was listening to an interview of two scientists who had worked on the James Webb uh, telescope that had just released all those like wild pictures of space pictures farther out than we'd ever imagine and then it as I was listening to their story they had worked on this telescope since 2000 like it was first conceived of in 1995 that is almost 30 years ago and they conceived of it thought about it they these two men had been working for 22 years and only now got to see anything and it made me think of heaven we are all working in our little places in our churches in our in our spots around the world and so you have all these scientists who are working on different little parts little wheels and things and then they, and then they the way they did it is they they divided the work up enough to where they all were in one room and they got to see the picture all together for the first time and I just thought of glory like what it will be when we all get together and then it just flashes this is what we've been working for the end of all things is at hand and we're going to get to come together and you worked on this part and I worked on this part and come together and just see the majesty of the universe of God the kingdom of God it is going to be so wonderful and I can't wait and I want to do everything I can to further that project along uh, right now though uh, it doesn't look like that if you remember the beat-up house I was talking about earlier um, this is a picture of me pretty regularly on a weekly sometimes daily basis I feel like this house no walls no plumbing no water a big hole in the floor right who in their right mind would invest in this place somebody did and I don't I want to have a conversation with them because <laughs> who would invest in this we literally use the word condemned for places like this and that was me condemned unlivable deserving to be torn down and maybe that's what the person's going to do maybe they're just going to tear it down and in so many ways I still am a broken down house 
The only difference is that Jesus bought me and moved in. And unlike that guy who decided to bail, Jesus will never bail on this house. It's so audacious of how we wonder whether we should leave faith behind. All these people asking, deconstructing Christ. Like, should not Christ be deconstructing me? Should he not leave me behind? Like, doesn't that make the most sense? If anybody's leaving anybody, I should be left. But he won't. Because Jesus knows 1 Peter 4 better than I do. He knows that the end of all things is near. And so he's self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of his prayers for me. He loves me earnestly, and his love covers multitudes upon multitudes of my sin. He is hospitable towards me without grumbling. He never grumbles, always going as slow as I need him to go. And he directs all of God's varied gifts for my good. And so you might be looking at your life or faith or church or this city and all you see is a broken down house and you're not wrong. You're wondering, is it worth it? But what matters is that Jesus is here. Location, location, location. That is what matters. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And even though there might be other houses, other faiths, other life paths which are bigger and fancy, more modern and better looking, Jesus is not there. He buys houses like this. Those houses are built on sinking sand, and the only sure thing is the house where Jesus is, built on what he has done. So where does he live? Where is he at work? What is he doing? Let, that's where you want to be. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for your grace, for your kindness, for your glory, for your power, for your faithfulness to us. Father, I pray that you would have mercy on our doubts, that you would have mercy on our questions. It is audacious that I would doubt you And yet, you are patient. You're kind. You answer my questions. You sit with me. You see me. You're encouraging. You bring other people into my life. Father, thank you for your mercy and your patience. Father, I pray that that you would help us to experience your grace this morning and that you would renew our sense of commitment. Help us to be sure of the end of all things and to shape our life uh, based on it. Uh, If this is day one, would we choose you today? Uh, Father, I pray that you'd speak into specific circumstances uh, where this passage resonates, and would the Spirit um, bring comfort and direction and challenge and conviction? Uh, Would you... Uh, be near to us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.